Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Tasha Anderson, the Charity CFO. Tasha, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to join you today. Uh, I'm really thrilled to talk with you about a little bit of nonprofit nerdiness in the finance industry that really helps organizations tell their stories better. But before we jump into some of those questions, can you tell people a little bit about your work? What is the Charity CFO? Absolutely. The Charity CFO is a nonprofit accounting firm. So we only work with nonprofits and we only help nonprofits with their ongoing accounting needs. I started the firm about four years ago after spending about 15 years in this space as an auditor first. Uh, then I was a CFO of a nonprofit for several years. I've also been board member, volunteer, worked with various funders in different capacities, and we just really realized what a huge shortage in talent there is to serve nonprofits in this way. So now I have a team of about 10 of us, and we work with clients all over the country, helping them with their day-to-day, month-to-month accounting services uh, and any audit preparation, tax preparation, and anything else that they might need to keep their funders happy and their board getting the financial information they need to make those decisions. Right. I think it's so important to really understand your own numbers well and to uh, not try to cut corners on how that part of the business gets done. I do think there's a lot of pressure in nonprofit organizations to uh, not spend money on anything that doesn't feel like it's a direct program expense. But that is, in fact, why I asked for some of your time today (laughs) is to talk about allocating some of these other expenses into programs. So um, before we get into that, let me just ask you, how do you talk about a, a direct program expense and an indirect program expense to organizations that may not have thought about how some of these things actually are part of the charity work that they do? Yeah, that's a really kind of a difficult question to answer sometimes, because I think it depends on who we're talking about, who's asking these questions For example, if it's a funder, then they've made it pretty clear what they consider direct program expenses within their contracts, right? So they might be including or excluding something that another funder may have a different opinion on. And then I think that there's also internal decisions on what we consider direct program expenses or direct expenses by a department, depending on how that organization sets up their accounting system, how they budget, and how they manage to that. For example, you might have a situation where we consider direct program expenses those items that the program leadership actually have influence over. Maybe that's personnel, maybe that's supplies for the program, direct marketing or advertising that we're doing to get people to know that this program exists and any other kind of discretionary spending that they might have. Uh, Some organizations take it a step further and consider direct program expenses insurance because they need a specific insurance for um, a summer camp, right? So I think it depends on who is asking that information and how we set that up and manage, which I'm excited to talk a little bit more today on different options that you can consider for how you might set up your own organization, how you might define that, how you might Uh, assign or delegate the responsibility of managing those items within your budget to the appropriate people that's working within the organization. Or even just kind of allocate some portion of what often gets kind of 
talked about as management and general expenses to individual programs based on some known formula. Uh, and I think that that's a, a part of the question of if those are direct expenses, some of the things that we kind of think of as um, indirect program expenses may be, as you mentioned, personnel, that uh, that management time of somebody supervising the staff who does the actual direct program, but they themselves don't provide program services. How do you help people think about that type of an expense when you're looking at a program budget? Great question. I generally will go back to the contract uh, if there's contracts or funders. And I start there because, especially if we're getting audited, a lot of my clients get audited and we have to make an argument for the estimates on how we allocate those expenses, right? We have to give justification for why we allocated costs a certain way. And if we can reasonably show that the funder has determined that this is a programmatic expense, we can usually make that argument that it's programmatic in nature. For example, I had worked with a client that was an office manager and uh, for a school, and she did many other things, as many of us do in the nonprofit space. We have many hats. One of her key roles and was written within a contract was the fact that she oversaw the food program. It's a preschool, but she oversaw she was overseeing the food program by the ordering, the meal planning, the administration, and would oftentimes step in and actually cook food in the absence of the chef that worked at that school. So when the auditors came in and had questioned why we would allocate her at all to program, I was able to show them within the grant agreements where she's directly responsible for the administration of some of that program. Therefore, she should be appropriately allocated into program. And I think a lot of times we think by nature of title of a particular person or the majority of their tasks and where those fall into the functions of an organization, we default to classifying them as administrative or fundraising or something to that effect. But the reality is many of us wear many hats right. and our time and salaries and any other expenses related to our employment should be allocated accordingly. So personnel being the largest thing that most charities spend money on, there are some, of course, that have building expenses and all these other things. But most organizations, their largest single expense tends to be personnel. Mm -hmm. I think how you talk about allocating the time of those individuals who wear the many hats is really important, regardless of their title. Um, but I think there are some clearer exceptions. So the work that I do generally is more in, engaged in fundraising, um, and it is a lot harder to talk about that as a direct program expense. Most um, institutional funders just can't see an argument for that. I assume that's generally speaking kind of looked at separately in how you coach nonprofits, or are there times when you see fundraising as part of a program budget? Yeah, fundraising is definitely one of those areas that the IRS and other funders have taken a pretty strong stance that that is truly fundraising. It would make a very difficult pitch to allocate them at all to programming. Yeah. Uh, I've seen cases where, for example, a program might get a tax credit uh, program from the state, right? They, they've been awarded tax credits and the proceeds of that have been specifically, you know, reserved for a program. And the fundraising person has to then administer that compliance piece. So they have to make sure that all the tax credit forms are sent to the donors and all the appropriate documentation is received just so that we can ultimately get that donation to be counted towards that program. We actually write that into the contract that we hmm. need that administrative function in order to 
to be successful in fundraising, therefore getting the money that we need for that particular program. Well, when I say by and large, the government, IRS, and other funders have, have taken a very strong stance on fundraising specifically, that anybody that writes grants, uh, does any grant administration, is by and large fundraising. Right. And and therefore, you know, allocated separately and not talked about as a, a function of this. And I think that's one of the clearer examples. But even here, you've just brought up a great thing of not every person that does fundraising um, does that 100% of the time. There may be some of these more administrative functions that support a program that just makes sense to keep within the ballywick of that particular individual, in which case it kind of leads to my next question about how you make decisions on allocating personnel who wear all of those many hats. Uh, so, I mean, certainly the most rigid and, and easiest, or not easiest, um, the, the most secure way to do all of that, I guess, would be to actually have individuals track their time week to week. So I know this week I put, you know, six hours in on grant administration versus 40 hours in on writing new opportunities. And then I can see where that might get allocated. Um, so that that's, I think, kind of the high end, but it requires a little bit more staff time and a little bit more sophisticated systems to allow people to record that in ways that are easier for the finance staff to work with. Is that a fair read? Yeah, I've also seen, you know, I think what we have to understand with with the allocation of expenses is that it's truly a management estimate. And you might have seen in your experience where we have to sign rep letters, uh, basically committing to the fact that we've done our due diligence on how we've estimated the cost and we've estimated these allocations. And at the end of the day, it's what you know the accounting world calls a management estimate. So what I like to do is just put together a really good argument for why we chose that position. Yeah. And the, the example that you gave of keeping track of your time day to day is certainly the most conservative approach, right. certainly. However, I have seen auditors recommend and be okay with maybe it's a quarterly, you know, track your time for a week each quarter, maybe pick a different week within that month that you've chosen, or maybe even a different month. So of course, maybe quarter end could be busy or cyclical, seasonal, depending on the organization. So let's have a variation on the weeks that we've chosen to track our time, just so we can encompass things like, yes, I'm a fundraiser, but I also, which is very event driven. So there's certain times of the year where I definitely spend a lot of my time on events. However, I also part-time, um, you know, the other half of my role is the CEO of the organization, right. for example. Uh, and we can encompass that seasonality and fluctuations by doing kind of a sample of our time. And as long as we've developed the methodology and we treat the rest of the staff, I think, accordingly, we can certainly use that to to craft an allocation that would be, in my opinion, um, acceptable from an auditor, whether it's the IRS or your financial statement auditors. So in the past, when I was a CFO of a nonprofit, we would have particularly program staff, uh, I'm sorry, program directors. So the director levels and any other kind of administrative functions that weren't completely clear that they were programmatic exclusively, we would have them do quarterly timesheet studies just so that we can get a good sense on what they're spending their time on and we can update their allocations accordingly. And we use that information then to craft the budget for the next year, assuming that nothing significantly has changed, right? So in the past, this person has been 75% you know, admin, 25% program. 
we're going to budget accordingly, but we can use those quarterly time studies to update our assumptions as needed. And I think as long as we have evidence, documentation, and a good, well-thought-out argument for why we're doing it that way, everybody that I've worked with generally seems to be comfortable with that. It's just, well, we're going to take 75% of all expenses, put them in program, and 25% in management <laughs> in general. That's usually not acceptable. <laughs> uh, there's something, some items that are very, very clear, uh, but then certainly other times where there's there's certainly a methodology. And if I could just dive into that a little bit more. Please, yeah. So, you know, certain costs are allocated based on time and effort, right? So how much time are they actually spending on certain functions of the organization? Other things are allocated based on maybe square footage. So how much time or how much space of the organization for overhead, depreciation, insurance for property uh, or anything like that? How how are those costs allocated? And generally we do that based on square footage. So for example, um, I have a client I was out working with yesterday. We're in the middle of the audit and they have about a 6,000 square foot building that's used primarily for parent training, which is a program that they have. And they only have two offices that are made up of administrative. Essentially the vacant, the building is generally vacant. And I think before they had defaulted to putting it all to administrative mm -hmm. because the program doesn't operate, you know, full-time eight hours a day. However, the space is designated for training. So we made the argument that the space is needed for parent training, not for administrative purposes. And even though it's not used consistently, it still serves a purpose. We need the building. It's, you know, we have to have it for program delivery. So therefore we're going to essentially allocate most of the cost of that building, say all but 10% is going to go towards programmatic. And we gave the auditor a tour. We explained the storage of the supplies and the need for meeting space. And they completely agreed. But having those arguments and saying, say, you know, we only have two offices here that are for fundraising and administrative. Everything else is programmatic. Let us explain that to you, show you, uh, and describe our programs. And they were completely fine with that. And that's really going to shift their management and general cost and, and, drop it pretty substantially because of that decision. So we'll just document that and and uh, continue that going forward. But that doesn't mean just depreciation. It could be all of these other occupancy expenses that I think a lot of people default to, um, they default to calling them management general expenses. Right. And I think those are two uh, just stellar examples of thinking around this way that uh, is really important. So thank you for putting that so um, clearly and understandably about, you know, thinking about your personnel as this more flexible thing, but also those other things that that space is a great example of. How do you tell the story that if you don't use that space for other things than that program, then it's, you know, very easy to make that argument. I really appreciate also that um, way that you're approaching this of um, the perfect should not be the enemy of the good here. We, there, there's never going to be the um, rock solid. There's no possible other way to interpret this. It's just got to be the best we can construct without hiring teams and teams of specialists to just mm -hmm. comb through everything. 
there has to be some reasonable cost benefit calculation here of this this amount of effort to understand our costs makes sense. We're going to put that in this amount of effort, you know, tracking 15 minute increments or whatever is just not financially returning any new useful information here. So we're going to back off to something that's reasonable. And I mm -hmm. really appreciate how you illustrate those two points. So um, I think that's a really good overview of that question of how do we understand what is perhaps more direct costs. Um, then I think the question becomes when funders, you know, especially I've seen this with government partners, come in and say, you get 15% for management in general, and that's it. Um, how do you structure the conversation with them to show um, we may actually have a different calculation on what our cost to operate this is? We'll only charge you the 15% because that's what our agreement says, and we're going to take a loss on the actual cost of operating this, but that doesn't mean we change the calculus on what it actually costs to operate this. We just show that your grant doesn't pay for our work and we have to offset those costs with other dollars somewhere. And I think that's an important tool people sometimes leave on the table. How do you um, help nonprofits that you've spoken with um, reconcile when there is a cap or a limit or something from an outside source on what they will pay for, but that doesn't necessarily really change what it costs to deliver? Some of the things that I've noticed with some grant applications, they don't necessarily address all of the types of expenses within their grant application. For example, if we need um, specific equipment to administer the program or we need a special insurance based on our licensing agreement or something to that effect, uh, or we need um, maybe some additional training for staff in order to administer the program, and maybe it's not crystal clear whether those are direct or indirect. And oftentimes we just look at the grant application, direct consumable supplies, you know, maybe equipment is allowed, direct personnel only, um, you know, and just the other handful of items that they might consider themselves direct to be, to be able to go back to the funder and ask them specifically on those, you know, two or three other line items and say other, please explain <laughs> as you're asking for, uh, can you tell, I've seen a couple grant applications in my, in my lifetime. Um, but generally, I will go back and ask the funder specifically, you know, we have to have this insurance in order to administer the summer camp. It's going to cost $4,000. Can we consider that a direct program expense? Because we otherwise would not incur it if it wasn't for this particular event that you're going to be paying for. And to the extent that we can move things out of that indirect line and into that direct line by having those open and honest conversations and letting the funder see that there is not a blanket, this is the very rigid list of what is considered direct expenses, we've been really successful in doing that. Um, professional development is another one that they might not consider direct program. Uh, but we've been able to say in order to administer this new program, the team has to go through, you know, this additional training or this refresh of training or something to that effect that otherwise we wouldn't have done if it wasn't for the specific program. So we've been able to change that dialogue a little bit on what is considered direct or indirect. And is it sometimes just specified, though, by some of these partners that here here are things that we, regardless of situation, are not going to cover? And in that case, do you still show them? Like, we think this is a legit expense towards this program happening. We're going to show it. We're going to show the budget deficit that happens as a result of that and only ask you for the reimbursement for the things that you allow us to ask for, but not try to change the math based on what you think should be covered versus what we think is a legitimate expense. 
I love this question because I took over for a CFO many years ago when I, when I became a CFO of this nonprofit I worked with and, and historically they had always shown a balanced budget, right? Just to reflect, this is the money that you're paying us or, you know, we're asking for, and these are the expenses we're looking to cover. And it essentially looked that the program had a balanced budget, uh, assuming that they get the funding. And right. in reality, that's not the case. And so I really, really wanted to show a clear picture because I think that by showing all of the expenses that we have projected for this particular program and showing that gap demonstrates the fact that we do have a need. And in the absence of this funding, we have to find other funding to underwrite this program. And so by not including all of the expenses, indirect or direct, it really it, it doesn't demonstrate the need as much. Um, that's been my experience. However, there are some outliers where the funders require a balanced budget. <laughs> the, within their portals, they don't allow you to show a deficit. So then it essentially becomes a plug to fundraising. But a lot of these funders don't realize how much of your fundraising is actually secured? How much right. do you feel good about? And how much of it is you're just, you have no idea yet how you're going to get that funding. And so by just having that balanced budget for those grant applications doesn't give anybody a clear picture on how much these funds are needed and what you truly plan to do with it. But yes, I generally try to include all relevant expenses, direct or indirect, and I show a deficit so that when we ask them for a rate increase, if it's a reimbursement type grant, or we've asked for program expansion, and they always, you know, tend to ask, well, you know, can't you just get fundraising or use your unrestricted fundraising dollars for that? And I've politely and respectfully said, yes. However, every one of our programs has this issue and there's only so much fundraising that we can fill the deficit for all of these contracts. So at some point, we're asking you to help support us in a bigger way, or we have to consider if this program is financially sustainable. And that's exactly where I wanted to go with the next question. So I appreciate that lead in that um, this is a really helpful fund development tool to understand the full cost of doing some and the limitations of where some other existing funding sources may not cover the cost of doing work in a community. So first understanding that and being able to tell that story to people, seeing if you can do some fundraising because they really believe in the work and they see how there's this gap and that's great. But the, the Pete, the, the part that you were just leading into of, um, and I run into this all the time when I talk with folks about government funding right away, that um, if the work they're paying for is super important to your mission and they're covering 95% of cost or 92% of cost or whatever, okay. Uh, I mean, I think that that's a fair going in eyes wide open. We are going to lose money from that particular source. How are we going to make up that five or 8% or whatever? But if you find out that it is, you know, a really important part of your programming and you really like it, but you're actually taking a 20% loss because of some of these artificial barriers that are put in by existing partners or sources or whatnot, at what point do you say, we can't keep losing money even on the good program? Certainly, you know, losing money on the bad program or well, the bad, the, the less vital program, the less mission connected program makes it a lot easier management decision to look at the information you help people gather and go, oh, right. This thing is really kind of losing us money and it doesn't have tremendous impact on our mission. Maybe we just need to wrap this one up and, mm -hmm. and move on to things that are closer. But in those cases where you've got people where there's a, a really substantial, meaningful mission impact from this program work, 
and you're losing, you know, more than a few percentage points where that fundraising really does become hard. Um, do you find as you kind of cast the light on those things with clients that they are always aware of how much they're losing or do those folks go, no, wait, we have a grant that covers that one? Yeah, generally they don't, they are not aware of, of how much it actually costs. And here's a great example, I think, of what you're describing and just to, to, to really drive it home. When I started working as a CFO of a nonprofit, they were doing respite services. It was a reimbursement rate. Mm -hmm. And say it cost us somewhere in the ballpark of $75 per day to do this service. And we were getting funded about $45 per day. And we had not gone back and asked for a rate increase for something like eight years because we were concerned that they would say no or cut our funding or I'm not really sure. Mm -hmm. Call into question why. Uh, and, you know, we just kind of like to say thank you. Don't ask us any questions because we don't want you to scrutinize our program. We're just, we want to kind of fly under the radar. We were, we were that kind of organization. We did everything great and, and everything was within integrity, but you just don't really like to call attention to yourself in that way. So finally it got to a place where I realized for every additional day of service that we're offering, it's costing us $35 to underwrite that particular service. So when we looked at it and everybody generally thinks, oh, great, I got an expansion in my funding instead of 10000 I now have 20000 That's a great thing. Is it a great thing? Because you've now just taken your fundraising deficit from $35 in, you know, per day on 10,000 units to $35,000 a day on 20,000 units. And, and can we rewrite the dialogue that, yes, we need an expansion in programming, but not necessarily to administer more services. It's so that we can continue offering services to the families that we already have without putting additional undue financial and fundraising hardship on this organization because we're getting to the point where we don't know if we can continue doing it for the existing units we've committed to, much less expanding that. So not shedding light on that fact, just because you have more money does not mean it's going to help you financially. It could actually put you in a more dire situation if you're not understanding what those numbers mean. Right. The the high cost of free is another way that sometimes I talk with clients about this, that uh, there's free as in puppies and free as in beer. And, you know, if you accept that free puppy, somebody <laughs> has to walk it and feed it and take it to the vet and do all of these things that cost effort and time and energy. And, you know, if you got the initial investment from that partner, because it was a really great idea, at some point, you really do have to understand those total costs. But I don't think sector wide that we always do a very good job of um, allocating and understanding all of those costs, but rather say, this is what we are being paid to do this. Therefore, that's what it costs us to do it. Um, and then you run into a deficit at the end of the year and you go, why are we losing money? We got this grant that paid for that thing. And right. it isn't always clear right away. So right. if you run into that with a, a board that maybe hasn't had that understanding yet of their full cost and how they should be allocating those across the the different program areas of the organization and what fundraising kicks in. Is there a, a shorthand that you start conversations with, with those leadership people to help them start um, examining where that money losing problem is happening? 
Yeah, I have an interesting example. I was looking at a contract and someone had had was awarded a contract and they wrote the budget in a way that they really wanted to show just direct cost, what they perceived to be direct cost mm-hmm. of of this particular employee. Uh, it was to cover a full-time person, except they didn't include any benefits, any supplies, and any administrative cost at all within that particular contract. And I said, okay, well, they covered the salary, but what about all of the other costs that legally and lawfully we have to we have to pay for, what are we going to do? And they just kind of looked at me thinking, I, I don't know. I don't know why we wrote this contract this way. And realizing that we really need to understand what's direct cost. And if, it, if, if a funder is not willing to pay for it, we have to ask really difficult questions. Does it make sense for us to do this on our own then? Meaning if, if it's in their needs assessment, it's in their priority areas of funding, should we accept that they're not willing to pay for the full cost of at least the the direct service provider. If they're not willing to do that, then it's a really hard argument unless that's our own agenda and that's our own, you know, priority areas as well in which we're willing to use unrestricted dollars to pay for this initiative. But I'm generally inclined to say no. And it's a valid ask to ask the funder, well, if this is your priority area and you've opened up the application for this, why wouldn't you cover the cost of the program in entirety uh, with mm-hmm. those direct costs? And generally how I like to pitch our skin in the game, for lack of a better phrase, we will assume some of those indirect costs perhaps that we would have to incur otherwise, right? right. So for example, the supervision from the CEO, maybe it's the occupancy. Those things aren't necessarily going to go away just because we don't have this program, right? Some of them might increase a little bit, but by and large that we know that there's certain fixed cost. So if you structure that and you have that conversation and you phrase it in a way, we're willing to absorb 25% of this, which really might be our indirect cost portion, but really fighting back on some of those direct costs and just getting people to understand what they even mean uh, is certainly a good first start to have those conversations. But a lot of times, you'd be surprised how many CEOs don't really understand what those contracts mean and how that affects them. If you have the trajectory of the entire year and you add up all of these things, what kind of impact it has, you know, because we kind of look at them in a silo. This seems like a reasonable deal, but then you put it all together and it's not, and it's not sustainable. And to your point, then we kind of question ourselves, what happened to all the money we received or why are we losing money? Would we have all these different funding sources? Because each one of them have a gap. And if we fall short on our unrestricted or, you know, donations, it it adds up very quickly. And I so appreciate you taking the time to bring this kind of message to the nonprofit sector, because I think in addition to just understanding these things internally, I think many people look at the role of their CFO, their auditors, their, their folks that look at that as you know, accountability. We want to make sure that people aren't, you know, running away with with resources that they're not entitled to or whatever. But it really is so much more about telling the story of what it takes to create community impact. That's what these this work, I think, is really about. So if we learn well through this process that this is what it costs us to do this work and this is what it costs us to do that work and here's why it costs us those things and um you know if we cut out donuts on friday it's really not going to make any difference in the big federal grant you know <laughs> those kinds of things then i think the 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 tool becomes that um, communications mechanism within fund development 
for that to be useful, however, we have to be willing to show gaps. And I think that there is also a little bit of a perception of, you know, we don't want to show people we're losing money that, you know, feels like we're, we're bad managers or we're not good stewards of community resource. Um, and then oftentimes we do get these kind of plugged budget numbers of, well, we'll somehow make that up later. Um, and, and we'll just call it fundraising and we'll make it come to zero. Um, <laughs> even though there's no real plan for how that's going to happen in that time frame, And I think it's, it's good to start pulling this together as this is storytelling. This is showing people what's going on. Let's not run from the fact that right now we're delivering a service that this community really values and needs, and we can't continue to sustain that without partnerships. And we should tell that story honestly and publicly, but I see pushback from that. And I'm guessing you probably do too, or how do you kind of get that either from staff or board members you talk to? Yeah, I think it's that underlying fear of you know, getting those questions, getting those hard questions, and maybe not being prepared to ask those questions. And I, frankly, like to go into, you know, even annual budgets with my board members and say, here's our plan, here's our balanced budget, here are the areas that we're willing to cut, you know, plan A, plan B, plan C, mm -hmm. as we as we progress throughout the year, that if we fall short on these goals, this is what we have to do to make sure that we are sustainable. Um, and I don't think that that's a bad approach to have that conversation with the funders uh, to some degree, yeah. certainly. And a lot of times they'll ask you, if you don't receive full funding, what impact will that have on this program? And I think we have to be honest about that because if we're not honest about that in a way just to get the funds, it really does damage for the organization ongoing. And by speaking our truth and 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 really discussing the impact it's going to have, I, I don't know if that does anybody any favors in the long run. Um, it just kind of perpetuates the problem and it just snowballs and snowballs. That was my experience back when I worked full time for a nonprofit, we kept expanding our funding and expanding our funding and we had zero dollars. I think we doubled in size and we're not talking, you know, pennies here. We're talking going from about a $2 million organization to a 4 million and then a $6 million organization all in a matter of four years. And the infrastructure was just crippling under the growth because of course we have billing and we have accounting and we have HR and all those other things. And yet there's funding for direct program costs, but not the administration to, to, to support it. And so if we're not having those conversations with our board, and we're not having those conversations with funders that in order to effectively administer these programs, we need these things. And what does that mean that we need to do from an operational standpoint? What do we need to cut? What do we need? How do we need to fundraise? How do we need to restructure these contracts? Certainly, how can we do a better job internally, streamline gain efficiencies, whatever it might be, but having those open and honest conversations so that we don't kind of paint things over with, you know, rose tinted glasses, like, no, everything's great. You know, don't uh, ask any difficult questions and we'll figure <laughs> it out on our own. Um, you know, it's really important to get that, to get that, those conversations going. I think there's a, a misperception out there that I, I keep working on and I, I'm hearing in your work of um, we don't want the 
you know, the funders in the community to think that uh, we're a bad bet for additional investment, that if we show uh, a deficit in this program area or an operating gap over here, that people are going to go, well, you know, we shouldn't put our money into those folks. They're going to eventually go out of business. We should go Mm -hmm. invest somewhere else. Um, When I think it really shows that we are paying attention and we know what's happening. And if we don't address these particular gaps, at some point, this is unsustainable. It may not be year one. It may mm-hmm. be that you go into, uh, you know, the the operating balances of prior years and, and you show that deficit in this year, but you do that with the intention of saying, we're going to spend some money that we had in the bank because we think this is the right thing to do, but we can't keep doing that year over year over year. So here's the plan to get out of this. But this becomes the communications tool that brings those funders back to the table or, you know, if it is individual donors, a more compelling case for those individual donors to honestly tell them this great funding partner has made a huge contribution. It's extremely fantastic and we're so grateful, but there's still this gap to make this thing work and we Mm -hmm. need you to step in. And I think people don't often walk into that as a fundraising conversation of this is good communication. This will motivate people, but rather they kind of feel like we're not good financial managers and we should not say that to people. And I hope that this conversation encourages more people to um, challenge that assumption a little bit and give some more credit to both their individual donors and their institutional partners to say, if we show those numbers, that calculation you were talking about um, a while ago, but here's why we think this is the actual cost of delivering the service, regardless of what you're paying us, um, that they will get that things are not going to be sustainable forever with gaps like that, that eventually something has to change. And it may not be this first year, but maybe then it becomes the thing in year two of an agreement or a future funder comes to the table as a result of saying that. So, yeah. And, you know, you had me thinking about something we've, we've been talking a lot about funders and how to relay this message to funders. But an interesting situation I found myself in more than once, um, although I think we'd all like to be in this position, is that we have to have those conversations internally too. So for example, as I was the CFO and I was also responsible for the HR, and it was about a $6 million organization uh, at the time with about 80 employees. And I was doing all of the accounting and I was doing all of the HR. (laughs) I was doing all the IT and I oversaw facilities somehow, (laughs) and um, which is not at all my background. Uh, And we had several million dollars in the bank for what was essentially a quasi endowment. So there were no restrictions on the funds other than we just wanted to be really fiscally conservative and we wanted to make sure that we always had a balanced budget and we always had a break even and we would go on spending sprees at the end of the year if we knew we had a little bit of money. Everybody get whatever you need ordered and we're Mm going to hoard everything for next year because we don't know if it's going to be the case. Or nobody spent a dollar, you know, between now and December. Right. Uh, and what was happening is, as I mentioned before, we kept growing the contracts and growing the contracts. Our revenue was growing, but the margin for us to be able to hire that administrative, you know, infrastructure was not there. So meanwhile, the fundraising department was having a difficult conversation with funders. We'd really like to do XYZ. And the funders would look at us and say, you're sitting with $4 million on the bank and a $6 million budget. Why aren't you spending any of your own money? Well, when you have a board that requires a balanced budget and that we can never operate or plan to budget with any sort of deficit, uh, and we have to break even or do our best to break even or minimize that loss, right? As the leadership, how are we ever going to spend that money, right? 
other than buy a building, which we actually had already <laughs> bought a building. So that was off the table. So for me, I structured this operating reserve policy and an operating reserve policy spend down so that we can have conversations each year about how we can proactively reinvest in ourselves. So if we want this to be sustainable, we want to be in good standing with our funders. We want to be proactive with the compliance side of things, with just good practices. For example, I need an HR person. No one is going to give me money for an HR person. No one's going to even give me money for half of an HR person. <laughs> I don't need a part-time person. I need a full-time person yesterday. So how can we get there? So I might be able to squeeze a third of that position, salary and benefits, out of my budget, right? We, we could figure out a way to stretch it. We're never going to be able to get to a place that we're going to find $100,000 in, in the operating budget to pay for this HR person, right? With full benefits and everything like that. So I structured the conversation and, and we really put together a plan as the board each year, we're going to decide to spend this much money of our operating reserves. Now keep in mind, it was an investment. So it was gaining earnings and things like that. We were essentially spending a portion of the earnings um, on proactive reinvestments in ourselves. So some of it could be cutting edge technology on the program side that the funders just weren't up to speed yet and weren't yep. willing to pay because it wasn't an evidence-based program yet, or something like we need a new copier, or I need an HR person. How can I have those conversations with a board that from an operation standpoint, we are balancing our budget. We are being good stewards of these resources. However, to take it to the next level, I need these things. I want to spend this portion of money in this way. And the plan is after two or three years, and I have to have a plan, right? Because they're not going to let me just spend money like crazy. But in two to three years, we fully commit to absorbing the cost of this HR person into our operating budget. However, we can't get there overnight. We can't get there just because the calendar flipped to January 1st and all of a sudden it's a new fiscal year. It just doesn't work that way. So we've talked a lot about funders, but I think it's also important to be really intentional and creative about how you communicate that to your board. And if you are fortunate enough to be one of those organizations sitting on a pile of money and you can't touch any of it, but you know that your team is drowning, you know, you're kind of really vulnerable from an administrative standpoint, how can you have those conversations on how to reinvest in yourself so that when a funder does come back and say, well, you're sitting on all this money, why don't you spend some of that money? Great question. We actually released $150,000 this year and we spent it in these ways. However, we're really intentional about what we spend to make sure that if there's market shifts or anything like right. that, that we're not putting ourselves in a financially invulnerable situation. So those are some of the things that we've done uh, with clients going forward to rewrite that dialogue and to educate the board on what the day-to-day -day operations really look like and how we might be able to be our own champions and not always just be at the mercy of funders. Yeah. It can't happen with everybody, but for those of you that are in those situations, consider that. <laughs> Right. We we are just about out of time, but I want to um, just echo what you said there about um, when you do this kind of work around understanding your direct costs, looking at allocating indirect costs whenever reasonable, having a defensible mechanism. Those are the things that lead to the ability to retain some earnings year over year and get that um, good policy driven. We want this kind of a 
level of uh, reserve. Uh, mm -hmm. So people can get there. Of course, every now and again, you get that miracle um, out of the blue gift that comes in that's not restricted. Um, and mm -hmm. when those happen a few times and you've been good stewards, then eventually you do wind up with a little bit more money in the bank than perhaps is prudent. And then you do have to think very carefully about how does one use that for mission needs in a sustainable way that isn't going to drain future reserves, but um, great thinking on all of that. And I'm so mm -hmm. glad that you brought that up as a, a good natural consequence of being able to understand your costs, manage your costs, but tell the story about what all of the costs are in order to make that happen. So um, with just a, a minute or so left, are, are there... Um, little teases or ideas that you'd like to kind of throw out there that we didn't have time for this, but there's more information on your website about that or the other, or um, how should people just stay in touch with you as they think about these issues? Absolutely. Check out our website, www.thecharitycfo.com. If you want to get in touch with me, there is a place on the website to be able to do that. If you want to hear more about the operating reserve policy that I've put together, that's been down not to start from scratch or recreate the wheel. And you want to know how to start sharing that information with your board, reach out, check out the website. You can also follow us on social media, uh, find me on LinkedIn, and I'd be happy to connect with any of the listeners and see if there's ways that we can continue that conversation. So I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to share some of these insights. I think that they, uh, unfortunately, too often are, are background conversations that don't get surfaced in front of larger audiences and are really important. So uh, Tasha Anderson, the charity CFO, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Appreciate it.